I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The FT. Hello and welcome back. Wimbledon may be over and the World Cup is coming to an end, but the Tour de France has started this week with the perennial discussions around doping in sports. And today on a packed podcast, we're going to talk about that issue in depth. I'm Andrew Jack, stepping in for Clive Cookson, who's in Turin at the Euroscience Forum, and will be joining us down the line in just a moment. You're listening to FT Science. Before we go on, I'd like to welcome back Diana Garnham, head of the Science Council. Hello, Diana. Good week. Good morning. Yes, very good week. Very busy with a comprehensive spending review. And also joining us in the studio is Paul Levy, Principal Analyst at the Drug Control Centre at King's College in London. Hello, Paul. Thanks for coming. It's a pleasure. On the line, I can just hear Clive's joined us. Hello, Clive. Hello, Andrew. You enjoying Turin? Loving it. This is the fourth of these Euroscience forums I've attended. They're biannual gatherings of the great and good of European science. They're meant to imitate the long-standing American Association for the Advancement of Science meeting. And they're incredibly varied. Everything from social science to hardcore engineering, biomedicine to cosmology. What's interesting is that there's an increasingly strong presence of young scientists here at these meetings. And there's a lot of talk, more than perhaps at other meetings, about engagement of scientists with the community through the media or directly and I'm very very encouraged by the number of young scientists from right across Europe from the UK and Ireland to Russia who've been standing up and saying that they young researchers need to take the risk of standing up for science fighting public ignorance busting myths about science I don't know what you think about that, Diana, whether you've detected anything amongst your membership like that. Uh, We have, and also I'm a trustee of Sense About Science, and they have Voice of Young Science, who I think are at the festival. Very, very important. These are people who are passionate about science, who want to make a career in it, and actually want to be very proud about it. And they, they know a lot, and certainly enough to engage with the public at a much more meaningful level, and they've got time and energy to do it. How do you think they can be protected if they want to remain in science and rather than going into PR or public advocacy, if they want to remain in in research, how can they be protected against the undoubted costs of speaking out? They fear they're not, it's not their peers, it's their superiors, particularly in an academic environment. And of course, in an industrial environment, you know, you have to serve your time before you're allowed to speak with the the name of the company. But there are very good examples of leading science employers who have trialled um, getting their younger scientists to go out and talk to the public at much more local level, for example, around installations and factories. I know Pfizer and Shell, for example, have been doing this. And so I think that their view, and I think all of us, should be confident. If people are employed as scientists, we have to trust them to go and speak for the science at whatever age they are. What else is going on in Turin, Clive? Well, 
I've been involved personally, I have to declare an interest, in a couple of sessions as a speaker and moderator. And one that particularly caught my imagination was about the spread of biobanking through Europe. Biobanks take blood and other samples from tens or hundreds of thousands of volunteers. And then they correlate the volunteers' genetics and other biological markers with their lifestyle and environment, and of course their health and disease. And the point is to find out more about the causes of complex diseases and discover better ways of preventing, diagnosing, treating them. And the latest proposal just announced here is to have a German national cohort with 200 million euros spent over many years doing this complicated analysis on 200,000 Germans. And it's partly modelled on the successful UK biobank, but with extra features such as more extensive magnetic imaging of volunteers and more extensive follow-up over the years, more follow-up evaluations of participants. So the thing is, we shouldn't expect res quick results from these biobanks, the analysis is probably going to take 10 or 20 years. As in so much of science, the payoff is going to be very, very long term. Thanks very much, Clive. And we'll pick up next week in our broadcast on some of those themes that you've been talking about. This week, we don't have any contribution from Science Magazine as Robert Frederick is taking a break. Now, sport and doping have a long and intermingled history. The practice has gone over and over many decades, and in recent years, science has been playing an increasing role as it tries through a cat-and-mouse game to catch up and keep ahead of those who are abusing substances to enhance their own performance. We wanted to start by hearing from a sports person to understand the impact of drug-taking. So I asked the FT's Johanna Castle to find us someone who could talk. She discussed the issue with four-times Olympic swimmer Karen Pickering. This is what she had to say. I first started competing on the senior team in 1986, so I caught the end of the East German regime, which we now know quite a lot of details of the systematic doping that was going on there. We then had the issues with the, the Chinese athletes as well, and certainly I raced against a number of athletes who were later tested positive. How did it make you feel when you were competing with people that you knew were taking the easier route? You know, if I took the, the World Championships, where I won my first world title back in 1993 in Parma, in the 100 metres freestyle, I came third. The girl who won it later tested positive. The girl who came second was back from a drug ban. When you kind of look back on it, you think I could have been double world champion. Can you describe what it's like? Um, post-race as yes. soon as you get out of the pool you go to collect your accreditation and that's when you'll be told if you're going to be tested and there will be someone with you permanently from that moment they will be sitting by the pool they'll be in the changing room they'll everywhere you go that person comes there with you then you go to the doping control center check in and basically you have to wait until you can produce a sample when you do you go into the toilet but the person who's with you comes into the toilet with you. They too, If you're wearing a skirt or anything, you have to lift it up high enough so they can see that there's nothing going on underneath, um, that there are no tubes or anything coming out because there have been instances of people even with sort of catheter-type wow. devices using other people's urine. And finally, Karen, have anti-doping measures and suspicion among athletes changed the spirit of sport? Not at all. I mean, it, it's just 
how it is. And I think that every clean athlete, it appreciates that that happens. You know, it's comforting to know that potentially in every race could be the top three and two others out of eight swimmers are tested. So for us, that's a comfort. Paul, do you hear a lot of stories like that from athletes and sportsmen and women and the frustrations they feel sort of seeing doping pressures around them? Yes, Karen's story is is very typical. One of the issues that she raised was the problem of state-sponsored doping, which fortunately seems to have now had its day, and we're looking at small networks of doping or even individuals. Thanks mainly to the work of the World Anti-Doping Agency, WADA, who have harmonised and sought agreement with uh, countries at government level and now increasingly are working with the anti-doping agencies and uh, recently drug companies in order to preempt problems with future drug developments. So let's look a little bit more around the science of anti-doping. Clive, I think you managed to talk to someone at the meeting this week that's quite relevant to our discussion, didn't you? Yes, I talked to Kurt Wurtrich, who won the 2002 Nobel Prize in Chemistry. Kurt has had a lifelong interest in sports science and in protein biology, and he brings those together through his particular interest in blood doping, which can increase the oxygen-carrying capacity of the blood, and this is a particular issue in the Tour de France. Well, this interest is much older than my activities in nuclear magnetic resonance. This interest stems from the times when I was a sports student, and so I was interested from there on in oxygen consumption and performance. I have worked on hemoglobin, and hemoglobin, of course, is that component of the blood which is responsible for oxygen uptake, oxygen transportation in the body and uh, oxygen delivery to the muscles, to the heart, to the brain. And nowadays I am asked to consult with the Anti-Doping Commission on procedures to be used, particularly in the area of blood doping. How good are the procedures available now for detecting blood doping? One can detect those kinds of blood doping that are known today. But there may be methods of blood doping that we don't know about. And obviously, if we don't know about, they may not even be on the list of forbidden procedures, and they are clearly not being investigated at the moment. Is there any reason to think that this is actually happening, or is it a fear of something that could happen? Well, past experience indicates that it is highly likely that something of the kind is happening. You see, as soon as there was a possibility to detect EPO, pegylated EPO was introduced under the name of Sera. This is used in medicine, human medicine. And Sera was not detected by the methods used in uh, doping laboratories until 2008. As soon as the method was there, a large number of bicycle riders and of middle-distance and long-distance runners 
were caught of having used CERA. Enhancement of the performance by agents such as EPO and CERA is dramatic. I have tested this on myself. When did you test it on yourself and what happened? I could measure the increase in the red blood count. It happened within weeks and my stamina was amazingly increased at my modest level of performance at this point, which is nonetheless measurable and which made me run uh, at a given distance like two kilometres in one minute faster than I would otherwise. We know a lot about, of course, the short-term apparent benefits for those who do dope. But, Paul, what does the science tell us actually about the long-term detrimental impact on sports people's health as a result of taking some of these substances? There are a wide variety of banned drugs and consequently there will be a wide variety of short and long-term issues. But generally we are looking as an anti-doping laboratory to prevent the risk that athletes will endanger their health by doping. Anabolic steroids, they've been with us just long enough that we'll know their short and medium-term toxicities, but we're only just getting to the point now where we're beginning to understand the long-term toxicity problems. Other drugs like the stimulants, uh, it tends to be the short-term issues that mainly concern us as the drugs are also short-acting. Kurt raises a number of issues. It, it reminds me a little bit of an arms race where two sides, the anti-doping laboratories, are trying to at least control doping, and there are a number of bodies out there that seem only too happy to supply doping agents. This will lead to problems in an athlete's health, and one way to get round this is the athlete biological passport which is a scheme which doesn't primarily look for anti-doping agents but it looks for the effects that those agents have on the body and consequently samples of blood are taken and analysed in WADA accredited anti-doping laboratories and a number of parameters are measured. I wonder Diana also if there's a a need to engage from a more scientific perspective with a broader public on the impacts of doping, you know, sort of ethical as well as scientific uh, discussion beyond the kind of anecdotal issues that we always hear about with particular sporting events. Yes, I think so. I mean, it's in everybody's interest that sport is kept clean. And actually listening to Karen Pickering, you've got the downside there of what an unclean sport does in terms of, you know, their privacy and their daily lives. So, yes, I think people need to believe in the value of doing this. We need to invest and get it right and um, trust the system too. And I noticed Paul just um, mentioned that they were accredited laboratories that do it. But I think that, you know, the room to play and defend on the inaccuracy of the testing process has been a confusion for the public. They don't actually understand that these can be very reliable tests. But I like the passport idea because that's a long-term picture that it gives us across all sportsmen, and that will help, I think, generally keep sport cleaner. So on the subject of new initiatives, just this week the World Anti-Doping Association has signed an agreement with the International Federation of Pharmaceutical Industries and Associations, the world body of the 
leading medicine makers, so those who actually develop a lot of these initial medicines that ultimately get abused. And I spoke to David Howman, who's the Director General of the World Anti-Doping Association, to ask him to explain the significance of the deal. Well, I think it's a significant indication that the pharmaceutical industry is taking this issue seriously. When a new uh, substance is being researched fully by a pharmaceutical body, they share that information with us on the basis that we can say to them, well, here's, here's the downside, here's the potential doping element that might occur as a result of this manufacture. And let us work with you on the way through before it gets out of the R&D stage uh, so that when it does go on the market, or even if it gets onto the black market, that the sports world has a way of dealing with it. There just seems to be this constant race with new drugs being developed, and it sounds as though this collaboration is very much trying to identify potential future products. So, so if you look at the, the range of substances that are used, you find actually an awful lot of them are very recent or even unknown to science. Yes, indeed, Andrew. There were various incidents in the Tour de France where the, in France doping is a criminal offence and the police were making various searches and they found uh, what they termed an unusual arsenal of medications which also included two unlicensed drugs which clearly were in the possession of the dopers well before they reach the public. Unfortunately, you can't develop the test before the drug is of age, but increasingly, under the new agreement, WADA are going to be told earlier that a drug could be coming to market, so the test will be already ahead of that date. So certainly an important acceleration then of cooperation with the, the early stage research. And I asked David to give us a sense of whether doping is as big an issue as it was in the past. We are winning a lot of battles. I don't think you can ever say that you will win the war because if you say you win the war, you're going against the tide of, of society in general. Uh, if you've got rules, there will always be those who go out to defeat them. So we are uh, in the same sort of scenario, but I think over the last five or six years, uh, in the period of which we've been really operational, uh, there's been a vast uh, erosion of the gap between those who cheat and those who are out there trying to detect the cheating. Interesting question, Clive, isn't it? I wonder whether, to some degree, one should argue that, you know, when you look at performance-enhancing medicines or abuse of medicines in other areas, you know, whether it's for mental stimulation for college students, one hears a lot about that, all the way through to sort of uh, drugs to prevent baldness or even for erectile dysfunction. Society does seem to have some quite ambiguous and maybe different standards, doesn't it, in, in how, how far one can get away with medicine use and abuse? Very ambiguous um, standards, yes. I was interested in whether society would accept the type of detection which I know has been proposed, which is that it goes back to what Paul was saying, that people have a stable biological state, putting it very simply, and a stable state of performance as an athlete. And therefore, if suddenly something changes, whether it's some biological marker, or they suddenly improve their performance in a way that seems impossible without use of doping or unfair use of medication, whether that should be included. I know that's in being discussed in some circles. I also asked David about what sports are particularly affected. 
Well, I think some of the sports that have been very responsible on treating it as a big issue uh, include cycling and athletics, uh, and they've had uh, years of, of controversy and, and what I've described as doping culture. You have weightlifting, which has obviously got a, a, an issue just by its, the, the way it's, which it's structured, the way the sport is run. Uh, you know, those who, who lift the biggest weights win, and, and to lift a bigger weight, uh, taking drugs might be a, quite a strong assistance. But you also have other sports where endurance is an issue, and, and you look at some of the winter sports such as biathlon and cross-country skiing, which have had issues. You have uh, other sports such as uh, tennis, which has had an issue from time to time. You've, you've, you've got lots and lots of sports. And as we keep saying, no sport is immune, uh, nor is any country immune. Having heard Karen's Pickering speak, uh, we were keen to find out what state the swimming world is in. Well, I think swimming would say uh, that they have dealt with the issue of, anti- of doping pretty well in the last few years. They, they had some issues in the 90s, uh, and they seem to have got over those. And I, I think that's probably got to do something with the, the culture and the way in which the swimmers themselves have addressed the issue and, and their coaches and their entourage. Uh, let's hope so, because I think at the end of the day, you, you can only address these issues if uh, you are very committed uh, very principled and very responsible, and, and I'd like to think that uh, most sports are. But the people who let them down are those who are on the periphery. Diana, does it actually sort of fill you with a sense of injustice when you hear these cases of abuse? Um, it does, but I was thinking in the longer term, I think one of the things society can do is if we look at giving longer-term respect and benefit to successful sportsmen who have been clean, then there's an interest in them keeping themselves healthy longer and worrying, perhaps, introducing much more of a concern about the impact on longer-term health. And that then becomes a a much wider social concern about keeping our sportsmen healthy and clean. Doping must be a holistic issue. We've spoken a little bit about the highly sophisticated scientific developments and new technologies, but one of the principal ways of keeping an athlete clean is, as David Howman said, to give them some expectation of being caught if they were cheating. And as a consequence, intelligence testing is being employed in this country by UCAD, the UK Anti-Doping Agency, where they're looking to test people out of competition where drug abuse is far more common amongst the few athletes that do abuse drugs. Now, the banned drug list itself has varied over time, and this is what David had to say about what goes on to it. Well, the list is formed by looking at three criteria, Andrew. A substance to be on the list either has to be performance-enhancing, contrary to the health of an individual, or contrary to the spirit of sport. And to be on the list, you have to satisfy two of those three criteria. Clive, do you think there is a a better need for a definition of, you know, the distinction between enhancement of performance and resumption of normal medical uh, normality, essentially. Yes, I do. And I think we're going to get much clearer distinctions over the next five or ten years through a lot of these biological studies going on. It even could be an outcome of the biobanking studies that we talked about at the very beginning. So I think in the long run, we're going to find out a lot more that will enable us to make these clearer distinctions that are so obviously needed. Well, we're clearly not going to get rid of 
doping in sports any time soon. But it's certainly been interesting to hear that academic science, the pharmaceutical industry, disciplines as varied as biology and even maths can be brought to bear in efforts to try to keep up with this constant cat and mouse game of substance abuse. That's all we have time for this week. Next week, we'll be talking about a range of different issues, partly inspired by Clive's meeting in Turin. So, Diana, Paul, Clive, David Howman, Karen Pickering and Joanne Castle, thank you very much. Thank you for listening. FT Science was produced by LJ Filatrani. I'm Andrew Jack. Goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 